Well, in Psalm 90 here, we've got a, we've got a wonderful psalm, as, uh, as you know, a psalm of Moses. And straight away you think, well, why have we got a psalm of Moses here right in, in, in the Psalter? And if you're reading from one of the modern versions of the RV, you'll see that Psalm 90 begins Book 4 of the, of the psalms. The psalms are arranged in, in different, uh, different groups. Why has whoever edited under inspiration the, the psalms, why have they put this psalm in here? Well, you might remember that in Hezekiah's time, we're told that the men of Hezekiah wrote out a number of the psalms, and it's been suggested that they, in fact, edited the, the Psalter, that is, the book of psalms, into the form that we have now. Now, why was Psalm 90, therefore, interesting to Hezekiah, and why would he have wanted to put this in here? and actually open book four, which it, it seems is uh, one of the books that, uh, or the sections of the Psalms that he particularly uh, edited, or his men, I mean, all under inspiration, but um, all the same, this is the human, human part that was played. Why was it so important to Hezekiah? Well, I suggest that it's because Hezekiah was one of those people who was told by God, you're going to die, and he reasons with God and prays with God and changes God's stated purpose, or at least delayed what God had had said was going to happen. Now, Moses was another man who did that. God had said he would destroy Israel and make of Moses a great nation. And Moses reasoned with him and asked him to stop that, uh, and God did. And he... It seems to me Psalm 90 is an example of him trying to do the same again. Israel had been condemned in the wilderness. That generation was not allowed to enter into the land, and Moses himself was also not allowed to enter the land. And I think this is Moses desperately pleading with God to change that purpose. And I think the... uh, The punchline is in verse 13, Return, O Lord, how long, and let it repent thee concerning thy servants. Let us rejoice and be glad all our days. That, uh, as I see it, that that verse 13 is in fact the, uh, in terms of structure, that is the, the pivot of the psalm. That is what Moses is appealing to God for, to repent, to change his mind. to to roll back what he had uh, said he was going to do to to Israel in the wilderness. And so he says, verse 14, Satisfy us early with with thy mercy. You could read that as him saying, just reduce the time period that you've set. You've said that 40 years that we... We searched out the land, so 40 years we've got to wander in the wilderness. Oh, early can you give us your mercy. Or you could read it as uh, the RV, Oh, satisfy us in the morning with your mercy. As if Moses is praying this one night, and he says, May I wake up in the morning, and may it be so. Anyway, point is, this is Moses pleading with God to change his mind. And he uses a number of number of arguments, and in the course of using those arguments, he says a lot of very true things in a very uh, poetic, in a very uh, persuasive and, of course, true kind of way about the, the mortality of, of himself, of Israel, etc. And I'd like to just uh, bring out a, a few points from that. Verse 2, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever... You had given birth to the earth and the world. Now, straight up, you see God as being like unto a woman giving birth. 
to a woman bringing forth, in this case, the earth, the world, the mountains. And God is of such a nature that he can identify with both male and female. And it makes interesting study to see how many times God likens himself to something or somebody female. Like a female eagle flutters over her young and teaches them to fly. So God said so he cared for Israel and brought them through the wilderness. And so no one should ever feel, be they female, male or whoever, that God cannot, as it were, identify with me. This is the whole point, that God can, because we are all of us made in his image. And that thought goes a lot further, I think, when we see that, in fact, this whole earth, this world where we live, even the mountains, are brought forth out of God. Now, there is in some creationist circles a, a phrase that's, uh, that's used, creatio ex nihilo, in other words, that, that God created out of nothing, that God created matter. And without getting too technical about it, I don't think that's right, because the Bible teaches, in fact, that God brought forth this world out of himself. And why that becomes important is because man is not alone, that this planet is not adrift from God, as we can sometimes feel. And we are also intensely and intimately part of God and with God. You know, God is not far from every one of us. The fact that God's in heaven and we're on earth does not mean that he is far away from us. Now, it's understandable that in our weakness we would think that, because for us, spatiality, that is space, means apartness. If I'm in Australia and, and, and you are in, in, in England or, or whatever, it seems that that's a huge distance between us, That let alone if you're in heaven and, and I'm on earth or, or whatever. But not for God, because he fills heaven and earth. He can, if you like, accommodate himself to space as we know it, or to time as we know it. The two, the two are some extent related, if, if Einstein had it right. Um, but uh, he can accommodate himself, but he is also outside of those things. So that the fact that God is so far away from us does not mean that he is, in fact, away from us, in essence, because by his Spirit he fills heaven and earth, as he keeps on reminding us throughout the Psalms. So then this idea that the earth was created out of God, out of God, it means that it is inextricably part of him, and that therefore he is not turned away, that God is not looking someplace else, that God didn't set this whole thing going and then walks away. Uh, and thinks, yeah, well, I'll pick up the taps when I send Jesus back, and we have the judgment and all that. No, we are intimately part of God 24-7. Uh, and that, that does need some reflection in, in a society like we all live in, where loneliness and the sense of being cut adrift from our roots is maybe stronger than it's ever been at, at any time. Now, at the risk of sounding philosophical, I, I want to talk a little bit about the wonder of creation. Because God is perfect, that is complete. You know the Hebrew idea of perfect really means complete. God is perfect or complete in himself and of himself. And that means that before God uh, created the, the world as we know it, God was not in need 
of us. It wasn't as if God was lacking something. He was lacking a son or children or something, and so there was this ache within him which led him to, to create us, Lord. No. That would imply that he was somehow less than complete, and that is not the case. Now, I know that God does speak as if he is in need of man, and I think now that he's created us, in that sense, because he has brought himself to some degree down to our level, yes, he does speak of that, as if he is in need of us, as if he uses us uh, in a way that he, he could not use anything else. Yes, that is how God expresses it to, him, to, to us now, and in a sense, therefore, that is how it is now. But before there was creation, before there was anything, as we know it. I don't think that God was in that sense lacking. He was perfect, he was complete in and of himself. What that means then is that creation was an act of grace. Creation is grace. And that has got to be borne in mind, because so many people struggle so awfully with these questions of the seeming injustice of creation, the suffering which there is. Why, why, why? People get angry with God. Why is there all this injustice and all this suffering? But I'm afraid they are missing the point completely. And you know, I speak as someone who, who also has, has struggled with those issues. But we are missing the point completely that, in fact, creation is grace, that God created us and this whole world with all its teeming life forms and, and, and forms of situation etc that, that he has created as an act of grace because he did not have to do this he thought up this wonderful plan that I would just like to create this to give a certain group of people human beings eternity wouldn't that just be wonderful for them I will do this he did not have to do this. He was perfect and complete in himself. But he chose to do this as an act of pure grace. So that, that's my little bit of uh, philosophy for, uh, for this evening. But uh, let's go on then. Uh, Psalm 90, verse 3. Uh, Moses here is pleading with God, as I say, leading up to the, uh, the punchline in verse 13. Repent concerning your servants. Uh, he says, verse 3, Well, you are from everlasting to everlasting, and you turn man to destruction, and uh, literally to, to dust. You return man to dust, and you say, Return, you children of man. Obviously alluding there to uh, Genesis 3.19. And it's as if every time a person dies, God is saying this, You who turn man to the dust and says, Return, you children of men. Now, there is something unique in the Bible. It is literature, but it is not just literature. And that unique thing is that the Bible speaks to every man and woman and to every generation in a unique, living way. That's why at Hebrews 11, verse 4, Abel is yet spoken of, right to this day. Jesus says, Matthew 22:31, that, that when God says, I am the God of Abraham, this, Jesus said, was spoken unto you, that is Israel in the first century. This was spoken unto you by God. That's why in the Psalms he is so often talks about the Red Sea as if that is going on here and now. That in all our crises of life, that's at the Red Sea, and God is parting the waters and going to save us. And in Hebrews, the writer brings this out again, that all that, that happened there in the wilderness was effectively God dealing with us. 
and that we therefore should not forget the exhortation that speaks unto us as unto children. So then, God's Word is a living Word, and I think that is the difference between mere Bible reading and a living relationship with God. Within the living relationship with God, He is speaking to us from His Word. And in that sense, when you think about it, all the emphasis that, that has been given to context it can be taken a little bit too far. We are not just reading a context. We are hearing God's, God's Word to me, to you. And that's why sometimes in the New Testament it picks up elements from the Old Testament, a sentence or a few words, and applies, applies those words in a way that is out of context most definitely out of context when you read the, uh, the, the, the background chapter that, that it's been quoted from, you think, no, that does not fit the context. It seems like the writer's just taken a few words and applied them to something that's totally not what the Old Testament writer had in mind. And that is, in fact, typical of rabbinic Jewish uh, exposition of, of Scripture. Now, on one hand, context is important, but if you see what I'm saying, you can take it too far. And the Bible, in fact, is not, is not a slave to context in the way that it quotes from itself. And why is that? Because God's Word is a living Word. It speaks to each of us in our situation, in this unique way. And that is why, at times, the New Testament appears to quote the Old Testament out of context. And I'll leave you to... Uh, I just think that one through a little bit. So then, I, uh, I've read this psalm a number of times in the, in the last week, and um, it wasn't until pretty well the last time almost that I, I, I think I figured what was going on. And it's this, that Moses desperately wanted to be in the land, and he seems to resent, he seems to resent that God has punished both him and Israel so hard for their sin. Remember, he kept on asking God to, to relent of not letting him into the land, and eventually, uh, we read in Deuteronomy 3:26, God says to him, Speak no more unto me of this matter. So, in verse 4, he says, Well, a thousand years... And just nothing. It's like a watch in the night. Well, the Hebrew watch in the night was was four hours. And I think what he's saying is, well, a thousand years of our life is to you nothing. It's something you don't even think about, just like we don't think about what happened uh, in the four hours of, of the depth of night. And this seems to be almost a bitterness of Moses against God here. And even when he says, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God, then he, he says, yeah, but then you turn us back to the dust. As if he's saying, it's okay for you, you have eternity. But we have a very short time here, 70 years, and if it's 80 years, then that's, that's just full of uh, labor and sorrow. Um, you've got all the time and we just got this very short pathetic little scrap of, of, of human history we are born in time but, but you're outside of time and we in the wilderness we now are, are going to die we, we've, we've suffered enough he says in, in verse 
15. Uh, make us glad according to the days wherein thou hast afflicted us and the years wherein we have seen evil. He's saying, look, we suffered enough for our sins in Egypt. Now, he's just casting us off in the wilderness to, to die here in the desert. That's how I, I read him, that he, he almost resents the, the whole idea that God turns man back to the dust. And of course, it was Moses himself who wrote about that in Genesis 3, because Moses wrote Genesis under inspiration. Um, what, what I'm saying is that I, I perceive here the resentment of Moses. And once I got on that, that track of thinking, I, the whole psalm opened up to me. But he starts off by saying, yeah, you know, you're, you're from everlasting to everlasting, but we've just got a fraction of time, and yet you turn us back to dust. Um, we're consumed in your anger and in, in your wrath that we're troubled. As if he's saying, look, you're so white-hot angry, it's almost as if he's saying, aren't you, like, over the top here with your anger? There's 11, who knows the power of your anger? Even according to thy fear, so is, so is thy wrath. As if he's saying, well, you're so mad with us that you, you make us die. And we don't live very long anyway. Our days, verse 9, are passed away in thy wrath. We bring our years to an end as a tale that is told. Idea perhaps being that, um, you know, at a funeral it was traditional to, to say a few words about a guy's life. And he says, well, actually, that 20 minutes of just uh, summing up someone's life, that's, that's all it is, isn't it? Um, incidentally, in Isaiah 53, uh, it, verse 8, it's brought out how tragic it was that there was no one to declare the Lord's generation when he died. There was no one to, to give a funeral talk, as it were, but that's... Um, that's in passing. So I, I perceive here a, a bitterness in, in Moses, a resentment, let's say, anyway, that God's wrath that he keeps talking about is, in his opinion, too strong against sin. He's saying that, look, you know, the whole thing about us having to get back to the dust is sort of a bit rich and uh, cut us some slack. We've only got 70 years or the most, 80, and uh, that's not much fun. The last 10 years, he's saying it's, uh, it's all labor and sorrow. So he's saying, look, why don't you give us just a bit of joy? We suffered enough in Egypt. Give us just a bit of joy, please. And make us glad relative to the years in which you afflicted us in, in Egypt. And let your glory appear unto your servants. This was Moses, of course, who had seen God's glory appear many times. And then he, he says, verse 8, You have set our iniquities before thee, our secret sins in the light of thy countenance. It's as if he's saying, well, sort of, you, with your glorious face, and don't forget Moses was the one who uh, had uh, talked with the angel face to face that had been in the countenance of God. He says, you look at our secret sins. It's almost as if he's saying, yeah, well, they're our secret sins. That's our private business. What are you doing looking with such intent uh, and such focus upon them? Uh, as if he's saying, well, you know, you're, you're hyper-analytical of all our sins. Now, it's not surprising that this prayer is not heard, because although all that he says in one sense is kind of true on a factual sort of level, you know, God does look at our secret sins in the light of his countenance. Um, and I'm sure Moses must have thought that about himself every time he, he was in the presence of the angel. Um, he, he's kind of 
complaining that God is somehow unreasonable or going too far in his wrath against against sin. And of course when he's on about our years or 70 years and if you get to 80 well it's you're just coughing and hacking your way through kind of thing and it's that's not much fun. Look, Moses himself lived 120 years and as you know it says that his, his vigor, his natural strength, his youth was not abated. Look, he did pretty well. He got 120 with all his faculties. And yet he, he talks here just quite the opposite. That well, 70 years, that's all you give us, and 80 years if we're lucky, but I mean, then you start, you know, you start cracking up kind of thing, and it's all, it's all labor and sorrow, those last 10 years, uh, and that's all, we, all you get. But Moses, you had 120 years, good years of good health, full vigor right to the end. So I do see something here of resentment in the way that he is talking. Now, this is why it's a, a prayer that's not heard. Now, you may say that's totally negative. What do we want to know about someone else's sort of cranking, cranking away against God kind of thing? Well, here's the point. Why that to me is wonderful, what we've just gone through in the last five or ten minutes, why that is wonderful is because it shows the degree of intimacy that it is possible to reach between God and man that this was how well Moses felt he knew God. I mean, any one of those five or six thoughts that we've just discussed just now, if they skated into my mind, they would skate out again. I'll be honest, I would not kneel down and pray to God and say, God, you know, we're just pretty weak people, we don't have much of a life kicking around down here on earth anyway. Um, look here, why are you punishing sin? Look, just cut us some slack, can you? I wouldn't even dream of saying that to God. And I, I find this just thrilling, actually, that there can be this level of intimacy, this level of connection, this level of reasoning between a man here on this earth and God Almighty. And so it can be that as a guy here on this earth, here in this snow-covered city of Riga where I'm sitting at the moment, that a guy standing at a bus stop or sitting on a tram can pray to God and get this close? It's, it's amazing. It really is incredible that this is how close you can get to God. I think it's wonderful. It's like, you know, Abraham with that, that business about for the sake of 40, 30, etc., 10, would you not destroy the city? He feels he can bargain with God. He can talk with God. Now, I know in this case God did not, as I think, answer Moses' prayer, or at least not in the way that Moses wanted it. But, as we know, there were times when God did. When God said to Moses, for example, I am going to destroy this people and make of you a great nation. No. Don't do that because of reasons X, Y, and Z. For example, the nations around us will mock you. Well, I mean, yeah, God, God knew that, because um, God knows all things. It's not that God thought, uh-huh, oh yeah, that's a good point, I hadn't thought of that. No, God, God knew that anyway. But somehow he allowed Moses to reason with him. Now, in dramatic cases, this can happen, I think, in, in life today. Those of you who know Dick Hillhouse would have, have heard Dick's story. 
um, of, of how he, he was very ill and was, was supposed to be dying and, and, and how he really had a conference with God and how he went on holiday, as I remember him explaining, he went on holiday to, to New Zealand to uh, just to talk with God in the, the beauty of the, uh, the mountains there and he, he talked to God about this illness and reasoned with God and said, if you take this away from me if you break all the laws of science and everything else, I will do this, that, and the other. And God did. And I only happen to know the story because, uh, quite innocently of all that, uh, we contacted Dick and said, Hey, Dick, uh, would you like to come and speak at a Bible school in the Ukraine? And he said, You know what's just happened? I, he said, I had this conversation with God, and it, 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 this whole deal with God, it took me, you know, a week or so. Uh, but uh, at the end of it, I sort of said, that's a deal. I came back to Australia, and I got cured. And uh, so now, I said, you know, I'll go wherever you tell me to go. And now you're calling me, asking me to come to Ukraine? Okay. <laughs> Better go then, hadn't I? So, and you probably met people like that, who um, <clears throat> have had those sort of experiences. But, I mean, these are what I call the dramatic ones, the, the life and death issues. But, you know, it's not all like that. <clears throat> there can be all kinds of things that happen in, in our lives where God may have a certain purpose for us, but then he may change that purpose in accordance with us, in accordance with our pleading. And this is the wonderful thing, I think, about how God's purpose is structured, that he says, I will do this, this is going to happen. You know, it's like, in 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. There was no implication there that if they repent, it would not be. But they heard that, and they repented. And so God changed his stated purpose. Now, it's, I think, a paradox beyond sort of uh, explanation in, in human terms of how God can be the God who says my word is my word and I do what I say and the God who says yes but I love you so much I who do not change my word I will change my word for you now that is the power of prayer uh, and that is the power of dialogue with God and reasoning with God so then, that, I think, is why the whole thing is, is wonderful. That this is not a man just cranky and bitter and angry with God. No, this is Moses, in fairness, reasoning with God. It's not crank, crank, crank. It, it's, uh, it, it's, uh, there's a process of reasoning here. I mean, looking back, reading it, analyzing it, you can see that yeah, he, he doesn't recognize God's judgment on sin as much as he, he ought to. And so it's sort of, in a sense, not surprising. Now, more positively, verse 6 talks about, he says that we as human beings are like the grass which in the morning, verse 5, in the morning, like grass which grows up in the morning it flourishes and grows up in the evening it's cut down and withers. We are consumed by your anger. Well, that's quoted, and it's quoted in James 1, verse 11, and it's in the context of not trusting in wealth and not trusting in men, but trusting in God. Why? Because that is how weak human beings are. And if that's how weak human beings are, that is how, 
that is how irrelevant wealth is. Now, again, we live in a society and a generation that needs to hear this like, like no other one did, that we are not to trust in wealth, that we are not to trust in human strength. Why? Because in the morning it's like grass that grows up, and it may flourish, but in the evening it's cut down and it withers. And that is how pathetically weak humanity really is. So then, what happens when your car breaks down? When you're stuck out on the highway, middle of nowhere, highway covered in snow or whatever, uh, uh, no one around and uh, freezing cold, what do you do? What is your first thought? Is your first thought to grab your cell phone and uh, call that number and and maybe you have to look in your diary or call the uh, directory inquirers and and find out the right number to call and get some help and blah, blah, get towed out of uh, whatever situation you're in. Is that your first call? What is your first port of call in your in your heart to God? Now, so many people are making a huge mess of their lives. I mean, so many believers are making a huge mess in the, of their lives because they're putting God last. All these human things, these human salvations are what they jump to, and particularly when it comes to our old friend money, to, to wealth. And this is what James is saying. Look, man is is just like grass that's burnt that just lasts for a day that's cut grows up quickly gets cut down on his burnt and that's the end of it so don't trust in wealth the issue is here about about trusting so then that's one positive thing that uh, that, that comes out uh, comes out of that another thought i thought i'd share with you is in verse 11 and i'm not sure Uh, exactly how this should be translated but uh, I'll read it from the AV who knoweth the power of thine anger even according to thy fear so is thy wrath it is almost saying that your wrath against sin your, your wrath with people is according as people fear it but I'd like to put that against another psalm which says that God's mercy will be upon us according as we trust in him. According. It's the same idea of according. It's as if God's wrath is upon people according as they fear him, and his mercy is upon them according as they trust in him. So, bringing that together, you come to the parable where the Lord puts in the mouth of uh, of the characters there um, uh, of the uh, the judge of the the one talent man who says, "Well, I knew you that you were hard and austere man, and so therefore, because uh, you're an unreasonable fellow, well, I thought the best thing to do was to hide your talent in the earth." And he, the judge, says, "Out of your own mouth will I judge you. You thought that I was a hard and austere man. You thought I was an unreasonable guy. Well, I will be." And I think that is in parable form what Moses is saying here that God's wrath is upon people according as they fear him. Now, what does that mean? That God is sort of just who we think he is? Well, no. Of course, God is God, and that reality is as it is, no matter how we may or may not uh, believe in it or accept it or whatever. But, in another sense, when it comes to judgment, and we're talking here in Psalm 90 about judgment, just as Jesus was in the parable, when it comes to judgment, 
when it comes to our eternal destiny, it does seem to me that the whole thing is in our hands. His mercy will be upon us according as we trust in him. And if we're like the, the one talent person who convinces themselves that God's a bad guy, an unreasonable person, and you're a hard and austere man, therefore I hid your talent in the earth, and the Lord is going to say, well, out of your own mouth will I judge you. You thought I was a hard and austere man, then you should have done something with your talent and traded it then, shouldn't you? Not just put it in the in the ground and left it there. If you think I'm oh, an unreasonable guy and I told you to do something with it, well, well, it doesn't make sense what you're saying. So then, it connects as well, I think, with uh, with Abraham when you know he's bargaining with God and he is obviously assuming that there are ten you know, righteous people within Sodom. And you wonder, you know, he goes down the down the figure from 40, day goes down to 30, etc. And you wonder if if he had turned around at the end and said to God, "Look, don't be angry. I'm going to speak just once more. Will you not destroy the city if there is one righteous person there? Because there was one righteous person, and that was Lot. You know, do you think God would have turned around and said, "Nah, don't think so. Nah, I'm not. I'm not going down that low, Abraham." No, I think the implication is that God would have done. His mercy will be upon us according as we trust in him. According to our faith, ultimately, it will be done unto us. So the whole thing about, you know, how harshly is God going to judge me, or how lenient is he going to be with me, is, I think, misplaced, uh, misplaced questioning, misplaced worrying. The issue is, what do you know of God? And how do you know him? And how do you trust him? And I I can say that for me, yeah, it's according as his mercy. So it will be, I believe, for me, and it can be for you, that it will be for us according as we trust in him. But for Israel, and for the, the one talent man who didn't do anything with his talent, well, his wrath with them will be according to their fear of him. Now, perfect love casts out fear. And it shouldn't be with us that we're endlessly worried about our eternal future, our salvation, our destiny, our absolute destiny, literally our eternal destiny, is secure. For the simple reason that the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. And yet, realizing our humanity does, I think, heighten, the, shall I say, the sense of reality of all these things. Uh, you got that again in Psalm 90, verse 12. So teach us to number our days, that we may get, our, get us an heart of wisdom. Now, that generation knew that in 40 years they were going to be dead. They were not going to live longer than that. That, that's how it was. And so I, I think if they had numbered their days, and they, more than any generation, their days were numbered, they were supposed to number their days, Moses says, so that we may get us a heart of wisdom. So I think by perceiving our mortality, we, we get wisdom. And it's a funny thing that people just assume 
assume their immortality. I mean, I know everyone says, yeah, I know I'm going to die, but people somehow do assume that there will always be a tomorrow. That is, it seems, part of human nature. And it's really the old lie, you shall not surely die. But I think the, the more we perceive this, that one day, as I keep trying to remind myself, that one day there'll be a radio play, and there'll be a fella on a Friday night working in a... Uh, making a tombstone, and it'll have my name on it, you know. D-U-N-C-A. And the last bit of the A, oh, hang, it's 5.30, like, it's time to get home, it's time to knock off. Got to finish this one. Okay, let's knock the end together. And there's a radio playing, and, and you know, the guy's looking forward to the weekend. Hey, that's what it's going to be. For you, for me, for the whole lot of us. We are going to die. And the quicker we get that banged into our head, really banged in, not, not in some passing sense of, oh, yes, well, I know that. I mean, really know that. Then we will give our brief life to God and to his service because we don't have very long here at all. We just have a fraction within history. Just a fraction. This is the whole point of Psalm 90. We are here just for a fraction. And there's Moses begging and badgering God, oh, just let, let us have a bit of joy. Um, let, let us make us glad after all the grief that we had down there in Egypt. Give us, please, a bit of joy. Just I know we messed up a bit, but don't... don't don't max out on our secret sins. Don't put them in the light of your countenance. Let us go into the land. Let us let us see it, etc. Um, that's what Moses wanted. But he didn't maybe see or didn't want in this context to see the bigger picture that in the end it doesn't really matter because life is short anyway and therefore let us get a heart of wisdom. Let us give our hearts to God because we know that when it's all over and done, we shall lie down and rest, but ultimately the Lord will come, and there will be that resurrection. Now, I think Moses and his maybe better, slightly better moments realize this when he says, well, you know, in verse 12, teach us a number of our days that we may get us a heart of wisdom. It's very similar to what he says at the end of his life in Deuteronomy 32 about Israel. Oh, that they were wise, oh, that they had wisdom that they understood this, that they would consider their latter end. And this is where, you know, I always prefer baptizing old people than young people, because for young people it is very, very difficult to get this clear. It, it is really so hard, isn't it? So then, verse 13, Return, O Lord, how long? Well, that word return, it's the same as you got in Exodus 32, verse 12. Turn from your fierce wrath. And here in Psalm 90, verse 12, uh, verse uh, 11, he's been talking about God's wrath. So the, the whole spirit of, of repent, change your mind, O God. You know, Moses had done this once in Exodus 32, and now he's trying to do it again in Psalm 90. And it doesn't, it doesn't work out. Talk no more to me. About, about this. But Moses was always hopeful that God would repent, would change his mind if he perceived the depth of Israel's sufferings. Again at the end of his life, Deuteronomy 32:26, the Lord will repent himself for his servants when he sees that their power is gone. Very similar here to verse 13. 
let it repent thee concerning thy servants. Deuteronomy 32:36. The Lord will repent himself for his servants when he sees that their power is gone. It's as if he's saying, well, I know that when you really perceive how much we've suffered, you are very soft-hearted. So please perceive how tragic it is to be human and change your mind about Israel's judgment and punishment in the wilderness. Now, as I say, Moses may have uh, had his ideals somewhat misplaced, but I think the ideals uh, and the understanding, the court understanding that he had of God was, was correct. Insofar as God does perceive human need and the frailty of the human condition, he will respond. You get it in many of the Psalms of David. You know, consider how frail I am, and therefore on that basis be merciful to me. Now, God does, of course, know our frailty. He knows our frame. He made it. He remembers that we are dust because he made us from the dust. And yet, all that is enhanced, shall I say, by the work of the Lord Jesus. Our representative is there in heaven, the man Christ Jesus. He's called that even now, after his exaltation to divine nature. Paul can still call him the man Christ Jesus, who is our mediator between God and man. So then, the whole thing is, let's say, enhanced. It, It is true. It is true what Moses says, that insofar as God... Uh, sees that our power is gone, that he he perceives our weakness and the tragedy of the human condition, he will is willing anyway to to change. The God who doesn't change is willing to change out of sheer pity from his understanding of his children's situation. But that was how it was in the Old Testament. But that is so much more enhanced now. Now that in heaven there is the Son of God who was of our nature, who knows what it's like to sneeze, to get irritated because the telephone goes off in the middle of the night, who knows what it's like to be betrayed, who knows what it's like to work construction, to work with with your hands, to get tired, to scratch yourself, to drop things, to make mistakes, to get driven to the point where you feel I cannot be asked to do anything else I cannot be, I must not be pressured anymore I'm at the end of my tether he knew that and this one who knows us better than we know ourselves and actually went through in totality more of the human experience than any of us have been through he never sinned and he is in heaven And the God whom Moses knew as a compassionate God who was willing to to change and do amazing things because he understood and perceived the frailty of his children and the the, the poverty of of their position and their situation. That God is the same. He has not changed. But we have before him in heaven an advocate who truly pleads our cause. And from that point of view... We can therefore pray, as we often do, that God will hear me for Jesus' sake. We pray for his sake. We ask God to hear us for his sake. He that is now in heaven, that was here on earth, that is now in heaven, who knew the streets and the the lanes of, of Galilee, who knows 
how to tie up a sandal. He is now in heaven. And he is our advocate. And he's the advocate that Moses, in that sense, did not have. It is him who, will, who has, we're told, has turned away God's, God's wrath from us and has ensured that we will ultimately enter the land and live forever. Thank you.